So how many of you guys have been sick in the last month? By a show of hands. Anybody take COVID tests, even though they've been unavailable? All right, four or five. And how many, six? How many came up positive? All right, same six. And how many of you think you really had COVID or it was just a gnarly cold? COVID? Think so, pretty bad? Or just a bad cold? Okay, so everybody, it's pretty bad. My mother-in-law, who is 78, she got a sniffle. No kidding. I mean, she, she had a very, very light cold, and she tested positive. I tested positive with a little pink line, but it took a long time. It wasn't bad. It wasn't like real hard-hitting like the first time in uh, 20, um, but it was just a longer, lingering deal. It took like three weeks to get over it. But anyhow, good to see everybody. Glad that uh, herd immunity is working, because I don't know about you guys, but pretty much everybody I know got this go-around. It seemed like everybody. Other states, all over the place. So, um, praise the Lord. He's in control of the viruses. He created them, and he knows how to work them so that we stay healthy. And it's been going on for, well, since, the, since man sinned, since, you know, curse came into the land with Adam and Eve. And we've had these things going on. And it's, yeah, getting worse but we know it's going to come to an end someday. So we just hang in there, and we seek the Lord, and uh, we don't take our eyes off of Him regardless of what's going on. And uh, you know, I, brought, I wrote down a few things that I just pulled out the news today. Things that, you know, start shaking you up. I mean, have the possibility of shaking you up. Um, you know, for, uh, you know, just some of the headlines were, is Biden going to run again in 2024? Um, a school employee taping a mask to a child's face. Um, gold medalist Caitlyn Jenner sends a message to NCAA amid trans debate. That whole thing going on right now about, you know, transgenders competing in all these high schools and college um, and Olympic events. Um, you know, mostly men that want to compete in the women's arena. Uh, I don't know what Caitlyn said. It doesn't really matter. It's probably... Appropriate, uh, appropriating the, you know, men in women's sports. But, uh, so these things are going on. Um, inflation, I mean, this goes on and on. There's so many things we could be concerned about. But I want to take all, you know, take all the stuff that's happening today, as scary as it might seem, and I want you to apply it and think about David and Saul. So if you would, let's go to 1 Samuel, uh, verse 24. And we're going to read a little bit about David and Saul and about what real struggles are. Real, real struggles. And, you know, what I find so interesting is, I know all of you have heard the story, David, and how Saul's constantly after him, um, Saul wants to kill David. He goes after him for 13 years. Um, David in verse 20, uh, or, uh, Saul in verse 24, um, let's start off, verse 1, 24 verse 1 of 1 Samuel says, Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. 
Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel. So 3,000 of his best. We're going to go find David and kill him. Let's get rid of this guy. I don't like him. I want him out. And uh, they went to see David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. Um, David is, his life is on the line, literally. Um, we might feel sometimes, I don't know if your, your stance on wearing a mask or not, but you might feel sometimes like there's an army, if you're not wearing a mask, that there's an army after you trying to get you to wear a mask. Um, kind of I brought up that, that school employee taping a mask to a child's face. You know, it's just, you know, a little out of hand there, right? A little over the top. But um, like went into Costco and I get into Costco and I'll just take my mask off. And, um, you know, people look at you like, hey, what are you doing? And it's, it's like they're shaming you, trying to shame you. And, um, but you just, you do what you got to do. And David was under pressure. He had a small army, but you know what he had? More than that, that small army? He didn't even need the small army because in other stories, God told David to go out and fight and don't count his armies. Just go, David. You're going to go win. Doesn't matter who you bring. Just go, and you're going to have victory. And that was the same thing that's happening here with David. He, was, um, he had God's favor. Saul was not in God's um, favor any longer. Um, in this verse, in verse 24, when it says that Saul took 3,000 chosen men from Israel, I want to back up a little bit. I want you to go to 1 Samuel 8.10. I want you to realize the importance of who you're serving. In 1 Samuel 8.10, this is a time when Israel wants a king. They, want, they don't want God to be their king anymore. They don't want God to be the ruler over them. They want a man like the other nations. And... Samuel doesn't like the idea, but um, the Lord tells um, Samuel in verse 10, so it says, So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, This will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots um, and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties, will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to perfumers, cooks, and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants, and he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men, and your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep, and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day because, of, because you're king of whom you have chosen yourselves. And he, the Lord, will not hear you in that day. You guys, today, we've got to be very careful who we serve. We can't get caught up in Biden or Trump or Newsom or any of the above. We can't because we could end up you know, falling into this whole trap. We need to keep our eyes on the Lord, and he will deliver us, as David did. David kept his eyes on the Lord and was delivered. And so back to uh, 1 Samuel uh, 24, we have got, so we have one scenario here of where 
David is being hunted by Saul to be killed. So let me switch over here real quick. David would not kill Saul, God's anointed, in, in fervence of the Lord. It's right here in Samuel. We're going to read that in a second. Saul hunted David fervently to kill David. David had opportunity to kill Saul and didn't. So we're going to see right here in verse 24. I'm sorry, chapter 24, uh, verse... I covered it up. <laughs> like verse 4, yeah. Then the men of David said to him, This is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand. You know what? Let's back up a little bit. Let's just, let's just clean this up. Verse 3 is where we left off. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Then the men of David said to him, This is the day of the Lord. This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. Interesting, right there. You know what? Just because you have the right or the idea or the ability to do something doesn't mean you have to do it. David absolutely could have, and it would have ended everything. And to a degree, he was right. Saul wanted to kill him, and he was just pr protecting himself. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. Just that simple. He just cut his robe, and he felt bad about it. Because why? Because Saul was God's anointed, as we're about to read. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. I want to keep going. This is just so powerful. I was going to stop there. But David also arose afterward, went out of the cave and called out to Saul, saying, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm. Look this day, your eyes have seen the Lord, that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave. And someone urged me to kill you, but my eye spared you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. It's just so powerful. Self-restraint, discipline, doing what's heavy on his heart. And when we back earlier when it said it bothered him just to cut the corner off. David had a very sincere heart. Um, it says that David had a heart for the Lord. And all that David did, his heart was for the Lord. So we need to pay attention to what the Lord wants. And we do that by... Seeking his face, reading his word, and spending time with him. Um, so David has this huge problem, right? Huge problem. This guy wants to kill him. He still goes after him. Saul is still not dead. And these battles keep going. And what eventually happens? Does David finally change his mind, have a change of heart? I'm going to go kill Saul. 
I'm God's anointed. I'm going to be the new king. Um, you know, I have these things. No, he doesn't. He just completely holds back the whole time. He, um, he's going to let the Lord do what the Lord is going to do. David's not going to interfere in the Lord's affairs. He's going to let the Lord take care of this. David is going to use all of his mind and strength to stay alive and let the Lord take care of his, his fight, which is awesome. You guys, we need, this is not locked back in time. This is very pertinent to us today. So through these heavy difficulties, David produced a ton of psalms, right? Psalms to the Lord, you know, rejoicing. Similar to Paul in prison, rejoicing under persecution. Um, what happens to Saul? Saul's not just killed. He kills himself. Is that not a trip? David's biggest threat. King David, anointed, killer of Goliath, does all, David, Saul kills a thousand, David kills 10,000. Awesome, awesome David. Doesn't have to lift a finger to get rid of his biggest threat. Saul does it all to himself. You guys, if you have something going on in your life that's big and it's bothersome, seek the Lord, do what you have to do, and let the Lord work it out. He will work out things that you cannot fathom could be worked out. I have a little story I'm going to say. It happened to me yesterday, and um, it's just so pertaining. I have a tire store. Most of you know that. And deal with a lot of people, a lot of keys, a lot of cars. Yesterday, we were pretty busy, and um, I'd parked someone's car about 100 yards away, and I didn't have anything to put the keys in. I put the keys in my pocket. My golden rule is you never put your keys on your person. You always put them in a bag, keep them in your hand, put them where they need to go. They got to go in a bag, they got to get hung up and put away. Don't ever put them on your, on your person. I call the customer, hey, your car's ready to go. He comes and gets it. He comes down to get it. I can't find your keys. I'm checking the bags. Joe Bowman's there. Joe Bowman's been helping me. Thank you very much, Joe. You've been a great help. We're looking around. We're checking all the bags and all the cars, checking in cars. Customer's totally cool. He's an actor, totally total nice guy. He says, John, he says, don't sweat it. He says, just call me when you find him. He says, there's actually an extra key in the center console. If you can get into my truck, which is locked, which I have a Slim Jim, I can get into it, get the key, you can program it, because I have a programmer, and then he'll have a key, and he's happy with that. But I'm like, where did the key go? I spent an hour looking for this key. And I'm like, I'm stressing, and I walk out to 100 yards, so I'm way out away, and I'm walking back, and I'm like, John, what are you stressing so hard for? Is it really going to change anything? The Lord's going to give it to you or he's not going to give it to you? I'm like, okay, Lord, I hear you. You're, you're right. And I'm like, you know, I'm just going to sing a little song. I'm going to sing, um, I want to say blessed be his name. I knew I was going to forget what I was going to tell you guys. Um, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. So I start singing this. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And I'm walking along, and I stick my left, my right hand's still numb from being shot. I stick my left hand in my pocket, 
after like the second time singing it, verse through, and I go, why is there two sets of keys in my pocket? I never even thought about you guys. It wasn't me. The Lord took my hand, put it in my pocket, and I felt the key. And I'm like, I didn't even realize. I'm like, what's that second key? I didn't even, it still didn't hit me. I pull it down and look at it. I'm looking at it going, what's that for? I'm like, oh, that's the key. That was the key to the truck. And I spent an hour looking for it. But you know what? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. When things are good, when things are bad, and in between. David, when things were good, when things were bad, rejoiced in the Lord. And um, so, you guys, when things are going sideways, rejoice in the Lord, right? Okay. Um, so, um, so to move on, so eventually, um, Saul really goes sideways. He doesn't want to do the offerings before they go to battle. Um, they get overthrown. His son, Jonathan, who David loves, dies. Uh, Saul sees his son, Jonathan, die. I mean, how horrific is that as a father? And then the sword bearer, he says, Give me, come and, and run me through. And the sword bearer's like, no way. I'm not going to kill the king. So Saul ends up falling on his own sword to kill himself. David's biggest problem, biggest threat to his life, falls on his own sword and, and just completely takes himself out of the whole problem, the whole equation. So you guys, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. So that was one thing I want to touch on tonight was that, that aspect there. And then the next thing that I want to talk about tonight is Jesus is God. You know, I'm bringing this up. I know most of you know this, but I want to bring it up because I'm not sure you've ever heard it in this light before. But the other day, I heard that a brother was like really doubting that Jesus is God. And I'm like, man, it just, it really weighed on me. It's been weighing on me ever since I um, heard that. So if you would, if you'd please turn to uh, Matthew 8. Matthew 8 is um, the beginning of a series of miracles that Matthew, other, you know, there's other, other um, books where Jesus turned water into wine was his first miracle. But according to the book of Matthew, the first miracle is, um, is Jesus cleanses a leper. And it's very interesting. If we want to talk about Jesus being God, it seems like, you know, what is, what's the big deal? Why is that his first miracle according to Matthew, that he cleansed a leper? Um, we'll get to that in a second. But what I like just before that I just want to touch on is that, um, okay, let's read it real quick. Um, Matthew 8.1. When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him, and behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing. Now, I want to touch on that for just a minute. Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus asked God, if you're willing or if it's possible, take this cup from me. And it was not possible. You have to drink this cup. You guys, when you're going through something heavy and hard, and you're like, Lord, can you take this thing from me? If you're willing, will you deliver me from this? and he doesn't, don't be mad about it. He's got the perfect view of your life. Nobody knows 
what you need more than him. You think you know what you need? I hope none of you even shake your head yes for a second. Because none of us do. We can't. We don't know what we need. He knows what we need in every aspect. He knows what we need today, so we're set up for a week from now, so we're set up for a month from now, so we're set up for a year from now. We don't know what we need, but dinner tonight. I mean, it's really, as far as, you know, our fantastic minds go. They are fantastic minds. I'm not putting them down, but we are very, very simple, and we really, truly do need the Lord. So you guys, please remember, if he's not willing, love him and rejoice in him. Um, Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing in all things with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your request known to the Lord. If he doesn't give you a request, don't be mad about it. Okay, Lord, no problem. <laughs> it's better I don't have it. Obviously, if you don't want me to have that, or you do want me to have it, whatever it is, awesome. Thank you, Lord. You're, you're my daddy, and you love me, and you will only do what is best for me. And I love you, Father. Okay, so, Lord, if you are willing, back to, uh, like, verse 2. Um, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now something very opposite happened here. I don't know if many of you catch this. Very interesting thing here happened. Um, before this miracle, the only record of an Israelite being healed of leprosy was the case of Miriam in Numbers. The phrase, if you are willing, is important because it indicates genuine faith. It does not necessarily mean that if one simply believes, God will do something, but that he can do it. Okay, here's where it gets interesting. Normally, touching a leper would result in a ceremonial defilement. In this case, Jesus touched the leper, and the leper became clean. Just the opposite, right? <laughs> Jesus would have been Ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, but because he's God, Jesus is God, the leper became clean, and Jesus wasn't defiled. Um, I just want to, you know, the interesting thing about this very first miracle and the leper, I've just got to read a little bit about leprosy, and um, it's five, lep five ways leprosy is a picture of sin, written by a gentleman named Doug Eaton. If you want a picture of your sin, all you need to do is spend some time studying the passage of Scripture that deals with leprosy. Doing so, you will see countless parallels. With that in mind, there are five ways leprosy is a picture of sin. Many people have expressed these before, so I do not claim them as original. They come from men such as Matthew Henry, Charles Spurgeon, and S. Lewis Johnson. Number one, leprosy was an inward disease. Even though you saw leprosy on the outside of the body, the real cause of the disease was lying beneath the surface. The sores and other problems were symptoms of the disease, but the cause ran deeper still. Sin is precisely the same. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. The root of sin runs deep. Sin proceeds from a sinful heart, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Matthew 15, 19. Just like the leper would have the disease long before it even began to show, Sin does its work in us well before others may ever see it. It often starts with secret sins where only we feel the tenderness. 
Then it begins to show itself in public sin. Then when we defend and justify our sin, it starts to fester and putrefy. But it all starts from within. Number two, leprosy was a loathsome disease. It could be felt. It came with uncomfortable numbness, aches, and unhealing wounds. Many of the wounds that the leper would have were the result of the numbness the disease produced. Once the sense of pain was gone, the lepers could be cutting or burning their flesh without even knowing it. Likewise, sin, sin stupefies us. Then, when our conscience is numb, it wounds. Leprosy has a terrible odor. The aroma would drive others away, but the infected person could not escape it, and at other times didn't even notice it. Lepers didn't even like the smell of each other, much like when two sinners get together. The sins of the other often repulse them, even though their own sin is just as rancid. Um, it could also be heard. Leprosy could be heard. It attacked the vocal cords, causing a raspy voice. In the same way, sin finds its easiest escape through the tongue, which is why James warns us of its power. Even Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Sin can be heard. Leprosy could also find its way into clothing and the walls of the house. Likewise, sin can manifest itself in the way we dress and what we do with and in our homes. In all these ways, leprosy has loathsome, well, was loathsome. It cannot be kept hidden, and like leprosy, our sin will find a way out, and we will be exposed. There is no hiding the disease, especially from God. Number three, leprosy was a separating disease. Leprosy put you outside of the camp for quarantine, but not only did it separate loved ones, like sin can destroy relationships, but it also separated the infected person from the presence of God. They were considered ceremonially unclean, which meant they were unable to go to the temple to worship, and the temple was where God manifested his presence. Sin does the same. It puts us at enmity with God, severing our relationship with him and leads to our destruction. Number four, the leprous person could not cure themselves. Isn't that a trip? Only Jesus can cure our sin. Isn't that gnarly? Only one single way, the same way this man right here was willing to cleanse that leper, is the exact same way that we sinners can be cleansed of our sins, the exact same way. If he's willing, Lord, please forgive me. During biblical times, there was no natural remedy, no exercise program or diets, and there were no topical ointments that could touch the depths of the disease. This lack of a cure, however, did not mean that people were not cleansed of the disease. Miriam only had the disease for a short time on her hand, and God healed Naaman by having him washed seven times in the Jordan. What is impossible with men is possible with God. In number five, I'm going to read last. I'm going to read at the very end because it's pretty radical. And it is this. It refers back to this Matthew 8 right here. So we'll come back to that in a minute. So the very first miracle Jesus does is healing a leper. And, has, and the leper is a picture of all those things we just read about. All the ways that sin and leprosy are, are synonymous is right there. And that's the first thing he does. So, um, so then now um, in verse 4, Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses 
commanded as a testimony to them, which is a big deal. He had to go to Jerusalem and offer uh, the gift. Um, I, th- I believe it was a, I don't know if it was a, it was a money or um, it was, he had to make the journey, um, he was near the Sea of Galilee to Jerusalem and there, and there offer the sacrifice required by Moses. So, no easy task. He had to travel and, and go out of his way. Okay, so now the second miracle. Okay, so now, and I want to show how these miracles are very distinct. They're not the same. And originally I was thinking, I want to ask you, if you were going to be God coming in the flesh and you wanted to show everybody that you're God, what would you do? But that would might, you know, hurt. Um, but God did these things very, very meticulously and and very, very organized. And I just love the fact that number one is the, is the leper. Now, very, very different miracles about to happen. And um, so now, uh, verse five, now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. He's a Gentile. And he knows basically the law of the Jews. But only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man under authority, having soldiers under me. Um, A centurion was like a lieutenant. He was in charge of a hundred Roman soldiers. So the centurion goes on to say, and I say to this one, go. And he goes, which is funny because Jesus says, go and come. When Peter says, Hey, Jesus, can I walk on the water to you? He says, come. When Ananias is saying, Lord, I don't want to go visit Saul. He's going to kill me when Saul becomes Paul. And Jesus says, go. And then uh, I think it's right here. Um, There's another one. Uh, Jesus gives these one-word commands. And I love it because the soldier says the same thing. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And another one, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Um, so now verse 10, when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Now, um, it's interesting that it says only one other time does scripture say Jesus marveled when his own townspeople rejected him. Remember that? He couldn't do any miracles in his hometown. And it says Jesus marveled at the, at the, few miracles that he could do. So two exact opposites. Um, One's with a Gentile, then one's in his hometown. Um, um, And this is a commendation of the faith of the Gentile centurion was a strong rebuke to the Jewish people. Um, The Israelites thought that they would have priority in the coming kingdom. Jesus made it clear that just being a physical descendant of Abraham did not guarantee entrance into his kingdom. Because Jesus, you, you, when you read this, you're like, the centurion says this. Jesus says, you've got great faith. I'm amazed. And then Jesus jumps right into this, verse 11. And I say, you know, first, okay, let's back up a little bit. He says, surely I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Then verse 11, and I say to you that many will come from the east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom, the Jews, will be cast out into outer darkness. 
there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus like interjects that whole thing in there and then goes back to saying, then Jesus said to the centurion, go your way and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. So now this interjection that Jesus puts in there to the Jews, he does this miracle and he wants the Jews to know this. Um, sit down, literally means recline. Where do we go? Yeah, 11. Um, let's see here. Oh, I read it. The Israelites thought that they would have priority in the coming kingdom, which is made it clear that just being a physical descendant of Abraham did not guarantee entrance into his kingdom. So he's really letting Jews know, hey, you can't, you're not going to get there on the law. You're not going to get there. He made it very clear to them in the middle of that, of that, um, in the middle of that miracle. Okay, so now we have the third miracle coming up. Uh, Peter's mother-in-law. Verse 14, now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So he touched her hand and the fever left her and she arose and served them. Okay, miracle number three. A little different. First one is healing a, uh, um, cleansing a leper. Second one is the centurion servant. Third is healing a woman who is just sick. And number four, um, verse 16, when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sickness. So that covers a lot. And we're going particulars, particular, particular. And now this one is just like machine gun, just like healed all these demon-possessed and... Um, and all that were sick, literally, and healed all who were sick. And then it refers back to the Old Testament. He himself took our infirmities and bore our sickness. Um, the verse quotes Isaiah 53, verse 4, took our infirmities. Is that, is that Isaiah 53, 4? Bore our sickness. Jesus healed because he had compassion on the people. Our physical infirmities are ultimately the result of the fall with its impact on our lives through the curse. Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses by suffering and dying for our sins on the cross. So now we have verse 18. Um, and when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Uh, Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Um, Jesus used this messianic title over 80 times to refer to himself, son of man, right there, um, 80 times. And verse 21, then another of his disciples said to him, this is a disciple, said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And what that really meant was this passage most likely describes a follower whose father was still alive. Because by Levitical law, the man would not be able, would not be out in public if his father had just died. His father was aged, so the man wanted to go to his home, wait for his father to die, and then follow Christ Jesus. Christ. Jesus answered, 
Jesus' answer means that we must never make excuses for refusing to follow him. There is no better time than the present. All right, so now miracle number five is about to take place. And this is another totally unique miracle. This one is the fishermen who know the seas have a gnarly storm, a tempest. Verse 23, now when he got in the boat, the disciples followed him, and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with waves, but he, Jesus, was asleep. Then disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. You know what? Jesus is about to rebuke him because so what? So what? You're going to perish. You're perishing with me. You're perishing with me. If you perish with me, you've got only eternity and everything you could possibly imagine ahead of you. So what's the big deal? He immediately rebukes him. He says, um, why, are you, why are you fearful? Oh, you little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled. Here we go, you guys. Jesus is God, right? Another unique miracle, right? So unique was this miracle that these guys say, so the men marveled, saying, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Another translation says, what kind of man is this? What kind of man is this that he can tell the waves what to do? So a very fifth, uh, fifth and very unique miracle. Uh, moving on to verse 28. This is the two demon-possessed men. When he had come to the other side, to the country of Gergesinus, <laughs> there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. You didn't go that way because these guys would tear you up. Um, this country of the Jarsazans may refer to the village of Kersha near the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, about 30 miles southeast of the Sea of Galilee. Gentile territory. Verse 29, And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Um, it's interesting in verse 29. I'm just going to read it. We learn several things about demons in this passage. One, they recognize the deity of Christ. Two, they're limited in their knowledge. And three, they know that they will ultimately be judged by Christ. Pretty heavy. Now, verse 30. Uh, now, a good way off from them there was a herd of many swine feeding so the demons begged them, uh, begged him saying if you cast us out permit us to go away into the herd of swine and jesus said to them go there's that single command i was looking for i knew it was around here somewhere go um so when they had come out they went into the herd of swine and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water now, here's where money is more important than man. Isn't that a shocker? <laughs> um, then those who kept them, the pigs, fled, and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. 
And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, not to say, hey, thanks a lot, we can walk through here now, and you heal these guys, they're not possessed anymore, and we're not scared to death of them anymore. But when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. Dude, leave. You're messing up our dough. It's our, it's our money. You just got our money just ran in the, in the water. <laughs> Crazy, huh? It just trips me out. Hmm. Okay, so now verse 9, and this is um, uh, the sixth, um, sorry, chapter 9. This is the sixth, I want to say, uh, sixth and final miracle for this section. Um, so he got into a boat, and I, I believe this is one that really, I mean, they all state that he's God because nobody else could do what he did. But this one really, really puts it away for me that, I mean, there's people that did all kinds of stuff. Simon, that, the, the magician, trick people, made a living doing it. I mean, he was, he was a great magician. And, um, but this is stuff way above and beyond magicians. This is stuff that only God could do. And so, number, number, the sixth miracle in chapter 9. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Then behold, they brought him to a paralytic lying in a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, he didn't say get up. What did he say? Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. The Pharisees must have flipped. What? They did flip. And at once, some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemies. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, who else can know thoughts? Could a magician know thoughts? Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Jesus's, in verse 5 and 6, Jesus' tactic caught the, L, the leaders off guard. Though these leaders might deny his ability or right to forgive sins, the outward physical healing could not be denied. It was far easier to say your sins are forgiven you because there would be no visible proof that the sins were forgiven. The healing of the paralytic, however, was proof that forgiveness of sins had occurred as well. Neither physical nor spiritual healing pose any difficulties for God's son. So that one drives it home for me. When you can forgive sins, you're God. All right, so um, verse 8, now the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified who? God. God, not Jesus. Jesus did the miracle, but who's getting the, who's getting the glory? God. What are we supposed to do? We do stuff, and who gets the glory? God, right? Not us. We want selfish ambition. We don't want us getting uh, glorified. We want the Lord to be glorified. Um, so now, uh, now chapter 9, verse 9. We're going to get to Matthew for a second because Mick, Matthew is a picture of us. So he does all these miracles. Now verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. Another quick command. 
follow me, go, come, follow me, no, yes. Jesus is very simple and straightforward. I love it. I do. I really love it. He could have made that so complicated. He could have made all of his stuff so complicated like so many religions do. It's overcomplicated so, so that only certain people can uh, dissect it and explain it to you. But Jesus is like, no, just, I'm going to be straightforward and simple to you. You can get it if you seek me. So he arose and followed him. Matthew rose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus quoted Hosea 6.6, 6, and again in 12.7, to make the point that God is more interested in a person's loyal love than in the observance of external rituals. Jesus refers ironically to the Pharisees as the righteous. They were not righteous. That was only how they perceived themselves because of their pious and scrupulous law-keeping. But Jesus explained, quoting from the familiar words of the Old Testament prophet, that God had already judged sacrifices without mercy as worthless. Isn't mercy huge? Remember uh, Mary and Joseph? And Joseph was going to break it off with Mary, was going to call, call the engagement off. But he, was, he didn't. He was merciful and he was righteous in his mercy. You guys were called to be merciful. Forgive seven times 70. Be merciful and kind. Um, now I want to get back to the very last thing of the, um, the leprosy. In Matthew chapter 8, we see Jesus touch the leper. The fact that Jesus touched the leper is astounding because if anyone else had come in contact with a leper, they would have become unclean. Jesus, however, touches the leper, and the opposite happens. The leper becomes clean. We are sinners deserving judgment, and God, being a just God, must punish sin. If God were to let sin go unpunished, it would mean that he himself would be unjust. So how could God justify sinners without himself being tainted? He did it by bearing the justice and wrath that sin deserved when the Father sent the Son and died upon the cross. For those who have faith in Jesus, their sins can be forgiven because their just punishment was placed upon Christ. God will judge every sin, and his wrath will either be poured out on the sinner or upon Christ in their place. This substitution is why God can both just and the justifier of sinners can be both just and the justifier of sinners. How to receive this cleansing? Are there works of righteousness we must fulfill to merit this forgiveness? The answer, of course, is no. In Leviticus 13, we see a picture of how we can be declared clean. And I love this. This gets really, really heavy. And so this is Leviticus 13, you guys. And if the leprous disease breaks out in the skin so that the leprous disease covers all the skin of the diseased person from head to foot, so far as the priest can see, then the priest shall look, and if the leprous disease has covered all his body, he shall be pronounced, I'm sorry, 
He shall pronounce him clean of the disease. It has all turned white, and he is clean. But when raw flesh appears on him, he shall be unclean. Is that heavy? If the leprous person was only partially covered with the disease, they were unclean. But if the disease covered the entire body, they were pronounced clean. This is a perfect picture of recognizing our sinfulness and coming to the Lord in repentance. If we come to him and say, I know I am sinful, but I still have some soundness in me. See these good works that I do? Please see them and accept me. The Lord will say unclean because self-righteousness is like the raw flesh. It is as filthy rags. However, if we come to him in poverty of spirit, recognizing our real condition, we will say, there is nothing good in me. I am completely sinful. Have mercy on me, a sinner. The Lord will say, you are clean. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Praise the Lord. Thanks a lot for listening, you guys. Let's go ahead and bow our heads and pray and seek the Lord. Father.